Many years ago, on a business trip, a waitress at a New York restaurant made a comment in passing to author Cameron Wright and his wife. She, like many of us, was struggling to understand God's plan for her life. Her simple comment made an impression on the young husband and father who had yet to find what God had in store for him. Today, we're talking with novelist Cameron Wright, award-winning author of The Rent Collector and The Orphan Keeper. Cameron tells us the story of his journey to writing books for a living, as well as other lessons he has learned along the way. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I'm excited to talk with Cameron Wright. Cameron, thank you so much for being here with us today. Morgan, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. So I full disclosure, I recently was able to read a talk courtesy of your daughter, who I used to to attend church with, um, that you and your wife gave at a fireside. And in this fireside, you talked about God's plan for his children. And you specifically started out by telling this story about an experience that you and your wife, Allison, had at dinner in New York with a waitress. I wondered if you might be willing to to share that story kind of as a jumping off point for our conversation today. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. So uh, we were in New York uh, on business. We were there with another couple and uh, we were out to dinner that night. And so we you know, went to the restaurant and sat down and the waitress approached, and I, I find most waitresses are, are certainly pleasant, right? But this waitress was so over-the-top nice. I mean, she was just bubbly and, and kind and and chatty, and she was just excellent. I mean, so much so that as she walked away from the table, all of the conversation at the table was still about that waitress and how amazing that, that she was, and, and just, you know, she just had a light about her. And um, and so we, we chatted about that, and then a few minutes went by, and she came back to take our order, and, um, and when she did, her, her countenance had completely changed. She was really quiet, and it looked like she was kind of fighting back tears, and it was so dramatic that when she finally got to me and then said, you know what, what would you like, I couldn't help but ask if something was wrong. And um, she she was biting her lips. She was trying to hold it in, but she just she couldn't. And tears started to roll down her cheeks. And and she finally just said, "You know, I'm I'm so sorry." She said, "I was supposed to get off today." She said, "It was my birthday. I was going to take your guys's order, and then I was supposed to get off." And when I went back to tell the manager, he told me that he'd let somebody off instead. That I couldn't, you know, I couldn't leave. And he did it, you know, just really despite despite her and. And it was just kind of the last straw in really a string of, of, I guess, trials in her life. And so as she was kind of relating this, she looked heavenward, and she wasn't really talking to, to me or to the table at the time. It was more to herself. But she just said, um, she said, I just wish I knew what God had in store for me. And uh, it was just really this moment that really touched me because I've also had been in that position. And I think, you know, everybody has. We've yeah. had these moments where we just think, you know, is, is God there? Is he listening? And and to just uh, to see that and be a part of that was really profound. It had a really uh, an impact on my life. And um, later, when uh, you know, to kind of conclude that story, as as she came back later, I I, um, I pulled her aside and I took some money out and I gave we gave it to her and we said, you know, hey, go buy yourself a nice birthday present. We want you to know that we care about you and and things are going to be okay. And and uh, and, and, you know, you could just see the, the light in her eyes come back and, and uh, th- you know, things were going to be okay. But, again, I've, I've always remembered that. And 
And I think, you know, I wasn't helping her that day. She was really helping me to kind of understand that kind of we're all sometimes in the same boat, that we all kind of wonder if if God is there. And, and uh, you know, so that that's the waitress story. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think the thing that I love about that story is that it's so relatable. It's something all of us, I think, have had that moment where we look heavenward and we think, all right, where where are you at? <laughs> yeah. What's going on here? And for you, Cameron, you have had kind of an interesting journey to this career as a writer. And I wondered if that made that experience with that waitress stand out even more to you over time as you've reflected on that, seeing God's hand in your own life. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to to this career as an author? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I, I'm not an English major, right? I didn't come up through those ranks. I'm kind of a business guy, and writing for me was really a, a midlife crisis experience. Now, when I when I say <laughs> that, I need to clarify, you know, nothing to do with my wife or family. That was all great. It was a, sort of this professional midlife crisis. We had um, some businesses that we'd sold, and uh, I took some time off to, to build a home, and as that was kind of winding down, I needed to yeah, I needed to go do something, right? I mean, I'm kind of the personality. I need to wake up and feel like I'm making a difference uh, in the world. And uh, I was struggling to find that. I, you know, I thought, well, I'll start another business, but I, I didn't know what. And you have to have an idea, right? And, and I didn't have, I didn't know what to do. And so it was just this um, this time in my life where I was just struggling to really feel uh, like I was making a difference, like I was finding my path, and I, I couldn't uh, couldn't find it. I didn't know what to do. I remember telling my wife at the time, you know, if I woke up and I realized I wanted to be a doctor, that would be great. I'd have, yeah, 12 years of medical school, never mind that I, <laughs> I feigned at the sight of blood, right? Uh, that could be overcome if I just knew if I had a direction. Right. It was getting up and not knowing what to do, what direction to go. That was I was really struggling. And it was kind of during this time, my wife was in a couple of book clubs, and she'd bring these books home, and I'd pick them up, and I'd read them. And I remember telling her, I could write this stuff. You know, and uh, I think she she kind of looked at me like, oh, okay, didn't think much about it. <laughs> and then I, I had an experience which kind of prompted me to start. I was um, so I had some I was doing some artwork at the time just to kind of keep busy, and I had a piece in a gallery, and I was out uh, looking for some wood to make some frames with. And I was at an exotic wood store, and this store you know, it was more of a warehouse, but they had purple wood and black wood and woods from all over the, the world. And this old man was kind of taking me around, showing me this different wood. And we came to a stack, and I said, oh, what's this? And he he's kind of got a little gleam in his eye, and he said, oh, I'm, that's glad, I'm glad you asked. He said, that's actually not exotic wood at all. It's just maple. So there's nothing exotic about it. We carry it because, you know, it's in demand. We sell it, but it's just plain maple. But next to it, I noticed there was a stack of wood that had all these cool black lines through it. It was just beautiful. And I said, oh, what's this? And it's where he kind of smiled and he nodded and he said, well, let me tell you. He said, that's actually the exact same type of wood. It's maple. But he said, there's a beetle that will eat into the tree. And he said, if the tree's strong enough, if it survives, then these burrows grow into these, you know, beautiful black lines, which make the wood rare and, and beautiful and more valuable. And I remember thinking, like, that is such a cool analogy on life, right? That yeah. if we can withstand the adversity, then we become more more rare, more beautiful, more valuable. And so I went home that night really with the intention of just writing that down, thinking, you know, I don't know, I'll use it in a Sunday school lesson sometime or something, who knows. Tuck that away. Yeah, but I'll write it down, I'll use it somewhere. 
And so again, this is sort of in the, the midst of all this, what am I going to do with my life? And I sat down and I started to type and I just I thought, hey, this, this might not be a bad first chapter for a, a manuscript. And so I just kept typing and I, I wrote a couple of what I thought were, you know, okay chapters. And, but I thought, you know, I've got to tell my wife, right, that I'm thinking of writing a book because <laughs> I'm a guy, right? I can't spell a word if it has more than three letters, right? And, and so it was, would have been very out of character to me for me to say, hey, I'm going to I'm writing a book, and so I thought, I have to tell her. Well, that night, I kind of hummed and hawed, and I, I finally, you know, blurted out, hey, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book. And she was just silent. It was just like crickets, right? And then after a minute of thought, <laughs> she said, actually, I think you could write a great book. And it was really just the, the support and help that I needed. And then I, I, you know, for the next several weeks, I banged out, uh, banged out my first manuscript, and that's kind of how I started. Wow. And at this point, how many kids did you have? At that point, we would have had four kids. Yeah. That has to be an interesting spot to be in as a husband and father, kind of feeling like there's something else that you're supposed to do, but not quite knowing what that is. Yeah, it was a real paradox, right? It was a real struggle because I felt like that I should try and write. And yet at the same time, it, it wasn't easy, right? I mean, there's all sorts of roadblocks and you'd have times where you'd You'd think, I'm just not capable of this. I can't do it. You know, what am I thinking? I'm not a, an English guy. Why am I trying this? And right. So, yeah, those doubts and those struggles were all there. Yeah. So you have this manuscript, and I, I think that this is interesting. Um, as I read the talk that you gave, you shared a little bit of, of this experience, and then I was reading Christmas by Accident, and I couldn't help but notice some parallels between your life and this experience and writing a manuscript and trying to find an editor and the life of the male lead in the book, Carter. And he has this experience where he thinks, you know, editors are only in big cities, and he kind of stumbles upon one, and you had a similar experience. Yeah, and of course, that that um, all is in the book because of really what I went through, and it kind of mirrors a lot of what I went through there. Um, yeah, so I, I finished this manuscript. Well, I actually didn't finish it, rather. I was working on it, and then I hit this sort of this roadblock where I just, I couldn't, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. And I remember telling my wife at the time, if I just knew a book editor— you know, and I had no idea whether there even was such an occupation. I mean, we're in Utah, right? And so I'm thinking, well, there probably are book editors in New York where the big publishers are located, but I've never met a book editor. I don't know anybody in the publishing industry. And um, and so, yeah, that's where I, w- I was frustrated, realized uh, there's nothing I can do. And so I set the manuscript aside. About that, uh, around that time, I had a friend I'd run into. He um, owned a the Pella Window Store franchise, and he, I was looking, I figured, okay, my manuscript's not going to make me any money, right? And so I better do something, and I, I went to meet with him. He wanted me to sell windows for him. I sat down, I met with him, and it didn't take very long for me to realize I'm not a great salesman, right? This job wasn't for me, and so I turned him down, and that just made him more anxious, and he kept, you know, saying, please, you know, come, I, I think you'd really do a great job, and so I finally relented. Took about three months to realize selling gigs not for me, and um, I told him I was going to quit. But he said, "Hey, you know, would you just stay around until we find somebody else?" And so that was kind of all going on at the same time I was working on this manuscript. And so I hit the roadblock in the manuscript. Two days later, I was in this uh, in the store, and a woman came in, and she was working with another salesman there at the store. And so, kind of as a courtesy, if if the salesman wasn't in, you would show their customer you know, his the salesman's customer, uh, the, the windows. And so I did that. 
And um, and then the friend, she had a friend with her. And after I'd showed her these windows that she, that she had purchased through this other salesman, her friend pointed to me and said, well, I'd like you to come out to my home and measure windows. And I said, well, yeah, I'll have Cody, who was the other salesman, I'll have him come out. And she said, no, I would like you to come out. And I thought, well, you know what? I mean, really, it was the other lady who was Cody's customer, not mine. And and so, yeah, okay, fine, hey, whatever, I'll, I'll go measure the windows. And so right. I told her I'd come out. Well, that night I got a call from Cody, and he was livid, right? He thought I was stealing his customers. And I Coaching. tried to, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I tried to explain, hey, you know, I was just trying to be helpful, and, and it doesn't matter to me. I'm leaving anyway, so you go, you take the appointment. And, and he wouldn't. He said no. And I, it was really peculiar because he was a, a very aggressive salesman, right? Right. And uh, and so I, I said, no, really, I think you should. And I tried a second time to get him to go to this appointment. And he said no, and then he hung up. And I was pretty angry, right? Because I'm thinking, he's, he's accusing me of something that I don't think I'm guilty of. And so I, I kind of stewed about it for a little while, called him again and said, look, I'm not going. You really need to go. You're and, like, I don't even want to be yeah, a salesman. Uh, yeah, I said, I'm leaving anyway, so I don't care. And he still refused. And so finally, I just threw up my hands and said, like, fine, dude, whatever, I'll go, you know. <laughs> And she lived up by the University of Utah, and I remember I went in. I was, you know, just kind of frustrated and angry. I, I, my goal was to get in, measure the windows, and get out. So I'm sure I wasn't very nice. Um, I, I measured her windows, and then in my one lone single attempt to be friendly, on my way out, I said, oh, I, I see you're a professor at the university. It was obvious to me that she was. You can tell, right? They just kind of they have that. The professor that, vibe. Yeah, that thing about them. and. And there were books stacked everywhere, and so it was obvious to me that she was a professor. And she kind of tipped her head, and she paused, and she said, well, no, I'm, I'm not a professor. I'm a book editor. And it was just this moment of like, wow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and um, it, uh, by the time I walked out, I'd given her contractor pricing on her windows, and she had agreed to read my manuscript. And it was just this really amazing moment where I thought, okay, maybe there is, maybe I need, do need to push forward. And, and indeed, kind of her advice uh, helped me to to realize I could solve my problems. I could finish this manuscript. I could move on. And and then it was not very, you know, a couple of years later, I was able to get the publishing contract for Letters for Emily. So it was pretty amazing. That is incredible. So I'm curious, when you give the book editor this book, obviously, I feel like I would be so nervous handing my work over to someone. What was her feedback for you like? Yeah, it was really funny, and, and this will kind of give you an idea of where, where I was at in my writing career. I, I, she read the manuscript. I, I went over to her home, and, and she, you know, she was very completely blunt, very honest, which is a great, you know, con, uh, great to be as a book editor, yeah. right? And she said, uh, Cameron, I want to tell you, she said, I see a glimpse of hope in your writing. She said, I, I think I see a spark here. There's something to it. And then she said, but I want to tell you, you're using way too many adverbs, and I kind of nodded and, and agreed, and I said, oh, yeah, that's, I, I realize that's a problem I've had. I'll, I'll fix that. And then as I'm walking to the car, you know, I'm thinking, what, of course, what's an adverb, right? <laughs> I, I couldn't remember. I was a business guy, right? Yeah, I'd learned that in school, but I, I couldn't remember. And yeah. so, yeah, it gives you an idea of, of really how far I've come. From that's that's hilarious. Then. I yeah. love that. So we mentioned that that this character in Christmas by Accident, Carter, he kind of has a similar experience. I'm curious, in your other books, have there been any autobiographical 
pieces of those books? Because the other books are a little bit heavier than Christmas right. by Accident. Yeah, I mean, as a writer, you can't help but sort of interject those experiences, right? These little bits of life into your writing. Um, and so there, there always uh, will be those situations, probably, um, well, I think in, in all of them, but really maybe in like Letters for Emily, for example, which was my first book, and it's a story uh, of this uh, grandfather and um, a lot of the experience, he has a favorite granddaughter, yeah, and my own grandfather had a favorite grandchild, and it wasn't me, I can tell you that, <laughs> but um, this grandfather writes these um, poems and then letters to his favorite granddaughter. And a lot of those experiences in there are experiences that I actually had with my kids. And uh, again, I would kind of, I've always kind of saved those. I would write them down, stick them in a folder. And so when it came time to write that book, I would pull those out and work those in. And so certainly, yeah, in Letters for Emily, there was that. Um, in, In all the books, there's a little bit of that. Yeah. So it sounds like you are a real record keeper. You've you've mentioned several times writing things down so that you could go back to them. What what role does that play for you in being able to recognize God's hand in your life? That's a very good question. Um, I, I try and the experiences I write down are usually um, little stories or little anecdotes or little things that. Um, that are just sort of lessons of life, if you will. And I, I don't know why I write those down. I maybe just because, hey, that was kind of cool, you know, and, you, yeah. you, and you, you'll forget if you don't write it down. Um, but I, I think they are sort of little records of, of the purpose of life, of the things that are valuable in life. Um, and, and so, and, and, and therefore, because they're sort of records on, of values and things that are important, then I think that means they're little maybe whispers from God, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about your advice to someone who might find themselves in a similar situation. You called it a midlife crisis. I'm not sure if it totally is. (laughs) But what would be your advice to maybe a young dad who finds himself in a situation like yours? Maybe he's had a business and he's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What What would you say to someone like that? Yeah, and you know, I don't have any magic answers other than j- you just have to to follow your heart. Um, I had um, somebody once say, "Passion finds a way," and I kind of love that saying mm-hmm. um, because you you know you wake up and you sometimes think, "Well, this doesn't make any sense because I'm trying all of these things and it's not working." Well, just because some days it's not working doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't follow that path. Now, it may. So, right. I, you know, I, I don't want to be the one to stand up and just say, always move forward, because maybe there are times in our life, and I've had those experiences where I've had experiences tell me that, hey, you shouldn't be going down this path. And so you have to kind of, you know, make your own judgment, do your best, but you just have to keep working at it and keep trying, because not, even the things that you're supposed to do are never easy, right? Yeah. I mean, look at any of the accounts in the scriptures, right? Nothing was easy for, for, for any of them, and so life does take a lot of effort. And that was one of the, the, really, the lessons that I loved from the Orphan Keeper. Taja's story is this story of amazing miracles, uh, miracles, coincidences, if you want to call them that, that are really unbelievable, but in every single case, it was Taj coming to a dead end and saying, no, there's more. I can feel it. And he just wouldn't give up. He wouldn't take no for an answer. And so I think that kind of taught me that we need to sometimes get out of our chair, that if we just um, sit there and think, I'll wait for the miracle, 
well, it's probably not going to happen. We need to get out of our chair. We need to go do something. We need to make it make a difference. When we do that, then on occasion, the miracles will come. Yeah. I I would love to talk a little bit more about some of the characters in your book. You mentioned Taj. Are there other characters that you feel like you've seen this this theme of kind of discovering what was happening all along around them um, throughout these stories? Because I think I feel like I saw that in The Rent Collector as well. Um, how have you learned about this principle of discovering God's hand through the characters in your books? Yeah, and if we want to take like a broad view of that question, so The Rent Collector, um, that a lot of that story came about because I've been amazed really for years about the lessons and morals that we see repeat over and over in, in classical literature. Uh, and I'm talking about morals and lessons like don't give up hope, people deserve second chances, you know, stories of redemption, which really the, the Rent Collector is a story of redemption, right? Absolutely. And so you have these um, these morals that you can take literature from a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago. Uh, they these morals repeat over and over again, and I've always just been fascinated by that. And I uh, mean, you know, because you have to ask why. Uh, the Cinderella story and, and the rent collectors are really a perfect example. So you can take any culture, um, any you know group of people in any period of time. You can take even isolated cultures, and they all have their own Cinderella story. And, you know, I scratch my head and I think, how is that possible? You know, why is that? Yeah. Well, you know, the answer we know is, is that we're supposed to have second chances, you know, because that's part of the plan, right? We're supposed to, redemption is part of the plan. Um, and so it's, it's in a gospel sense, it's kind of been fascinating to me to sort of see the hand of God in things as simple as literature, classical literature over the years. And so, the, and, you know, that's in a larger sense. I think we see that repeat in specific uh well, in my life, certainly, I've seen the hand of God, and, and really take any story in any bookstore or library, it's going to be about somebody having a, a conflict, overcoming that conflict, finding value, finding truth. I mean, those are the stories that we love as people, and I think the reason we love them is because there's something, t- you know, to the whole notion. There's truth. Yeah, in there's them. truth in them. Yeah. Rings, rings to our hearts, yeah. I think. Do you have, are there specific books that have influenced you and your writing in a powerful way that you you really love or would recommend? You know, about, because I, I, I'm sort of new to the whole writing gig, if you will, the whole business of writing, about half the books I read are really books on writing. And uh, and so I find those interesting. Um, other than that, I mean, I read a, a wide variety of, of authors. It really kind of depends on maybe the story I'm writing, what I need to focus on. You know, if I'm going to write descriptions, and Anthony Doerr writes amazing descriptions. Uh, if I'm going to write dialogue, then, um, you know, Nick Hornby is pretty amazing at dialogue. And so you, you try and look for people who, in the craft, who really write amazing uh, um, stories, amazing work, and and see how they're doing it, and then try and, and do something similar. Um, but yeah, I, I can't think of anything really specific there. But in general, there's, I, I read a wide variety of stories. I'm fascinated by that concept of of trying to pull out these different aspects of writing from different authors. I think that that's amazing. One thing I've noticed as we've talked, you've mentioned your wife several times. You've mentioned, you know, my wife probably thought I was crazy (laughs) or my wife, you know, gave me this bit of encouragement that I needed right when I needed it most. And I think that is a 
powerful thought. Uh, it's something I think everybody needs someone that believes in them. What has that meant to you to have your wife's support? Yeah, I don't, I don't, wouldn't have been able to, to write to start, you know, the first book really without it. I don't think I would have had maybe that confidence that, okay, maybe I can do this. Um, and, and logistically, right, it would have been really difficult to try and pull that off without her uh, agreeing. Um, and so it, it's been very valuable. At the same time, I think, man, what was she thinking? You know, I mean, <laughs> like, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I, I do question her judgment, <laughs> I suggest, but, uh, no, it's been, uh, yeah, we have a, have a great relationship, and that's been really amazing. I love that. What would you say, Cameron, throughout all of these experiences that you've had, what would you say are the biggest lessons that you've learned about personal revelation and about seeking for God's hand in our lives? I think that um, we sometimes we— we want the the thunder, right, and the lightning and the the angel to come down, and I, that doesn't happen to me. Um, you know, I'll hear stories, and people will say, "Oh, I, I felt like I should stop and see this person." I don't have those. I'm, you know, full disclosure here, right? So, what happens in my life? Well, in my life, I'll be driving home, and I'll think, "Oh, I need to stop at the store and get something," and that's where I'll run into the person. So, I think God has kind of full control, right? I mean, if I'm not in tune enough for that. He's like, hey, I got this. I can work things out. And so I think we just need to be open. I think we need to just get out there and, and you know, make our best decision and, and certainly seek God's counsel and try and do what we need to do, but, but then go do something and, and realize that he's got us covered. You know, he'll take care of it. And that's really kind of been the experience in, in my life. I mean, the, the experiences like with the book editor, those are really a fraction of, of the time. Most of the time, it's just sitting down and working and struggling and, and trying to do the best I can. And, and I, I think those, that happens because, you know, we, we don't need these, these signposts, I call them, these miracles every day. You know, I think sometimes God expects us just to jump in and, and let's get going. And I'll let you know if you're going the wrong direction. I'll stop you. I'll stop you. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so that's kind of how I govern my life. Yeah. And you, you're a father of four. Yes. How how have you tried to help your children understand this principle? What counsel have you given them as a father in in maybe their own individual efforts to to see God's hand? Gosh, that's going to bring up a lot of failings in my uh, for me. I, I you know my kids are great. I have great kids, and but it's I don't feel like it's me. Or you know I think they just came down as really good kids. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's been fun to, to watch them. They, they have ambition. They, they're, they're trying to make a difference. And um, we certainly encourage them. I mean, we certainly try and, and you know, think through the choices and, and be good parents. But also, we are pretty independent parents. We kind of gave our kids uh, a really long leash, and that seemed to serve them well. doesn't mean that all parents should do that. I'm not suggesting that. But, you know, again, it's just the do your best, right? How else do you do it? I don't know. Yeah. Nobody sent me the parenting manual, so. I guess uh, Heavenly Father gave us a fairly long leash as well. Yeah, I so. think that's an <laughs> ex- excellent thought, yeah. My, my last question for you is a question that I think 
is really the the whole idea behind this podcast, which is this concept of being all in. And I think that that means different things to different people. But for you, Cameron, what does it mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, my, my first reaction, and I think maybe perhaps out of many, is to say that, you know, being all in means that we should be strong and valiant and committed to the gospel. And and I think perhaps it, it does, it means that. But the problem, at least for me, is that, you know, I stumble. I make mistakes. I have days where I'm not strong. I'm not valiant. I'm not as committed as I should be. And, you know, I may even start to wonder if God's too busy for me, if he's really listening. And in fact, one of my favorite movie lines is in the film Return to Me. And it's this moment where an exasperated mini driver, she looks heavenward and she declares, what was God thinking? (laughs) And I have those moments all the time, right? And uh, I think it's okay. I mean, I can be human. I can still make mistakes. And yet I can be all in. If at the end of the day, I know where to look for redemption from those failings, I think if I remember to keep Christ at the center of my life in all that I do, if I try and cultivate a love for others, that's even if it's just a fraction of the love he has for me, then, yeah, I may not be all in, but I can certainly feel the sun on my face, and I think I'm inching in the right direction, and I think for me that's what it represents to be all in. I really really appreciate that. I think that sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for the little victories that we have along the way. And we also sometimes, I think, don't give God enough credit for the little manifestations of His hand in our lives. And so, Cameron, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us here today. I think that it's something that all of us have felt those moments of being like, all right, what am I doing? And hopefully by hearing your experience, others will have a little glimmer of hope for themselves that maybe they're not so far off track. So thank you. I hope so. And thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you to Cameron Wright for joining us and to you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look for Cameron's newest book, Christmas by Accident, available now at Deseret Book.